Previously in the Elendred. In episode one, Alondra Ramirez arrives on Freya, the innermost planet in Wolf System, with the job of investigating a claim that a local aristocrat's android has begun doing magic. However, the android, named Penelope, does not exhibit any talent for witchcraft. On Freya, she learns that Gabriel Burns, an authoritarian populist, has been appointed to the position of Lord Regent over magical affairs, and later, her friend Jonathan Harper gives her a strange gift, an impossibly heavy spherical black stone about the size of a plum. Meanwhile, on Tyr, the next planet out, Norel Peters and Bridget Lozano get caught up in a massive riot while attempting to track down a spellbook. Bridget quells the riot by putting everyone into a daze with a powerful spell, and she and Norel flee the scene. Back on Freya, Jonathan warns Alondra that Gabriel Burns has secretly followed her to Harperstown, with the intention of destroying the android. Alondra races to the Petraeus estate and convinces Julian Petraeus to remove his imposed programming from Penelope's directive stack, allowing her to escape. The two of them run through the Petraeus back gardens, chased by Regency officers, until they are stopped short at the edge of a ravine, thousands of feet deep. With nowhere else to run, Penelope gives her hand to Alondra, and Alondra drags both of them over the side of the cliff. Right, any questions? So there's Bridget and Nalara? Bridget Bridget and Norell Peters. So, Bridget and Norell Peters. One of them is tall and blonde. The other is short, brown hair with a, a <laughs> big legs and well? Yeah, this is a good question. So, Norelle Peters is a short, older, blonde woman with a prosthetic leg, an advanced prosthetic leg. And Bridget is taller, um, younger, a sort of gangly um, uh, Mexican-American woman. Do we know what caused the riot? Yes. So, the riot appeared to be about uh, some sort of automation happening at a restaurant. At like a, a fast food place where they had replaced all the staff with a robot which and, and there's a scene where there's like this kind of um cartoonish robot that they drag out and destroy in the square right before the police flood in um and so you get the sense that people are economically struggling okay i think that's it Hi, my name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode two, so if you haven't yet listened to episode one, I'd recommend pausing here and listening to that first. Also, since this is a long story with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles, or while arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be while sheltering in a cool cave with someone you just met but loved instantly, watching a heavy rain come down outside. But it's ultimately up to you. I'm sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little after 8 p.m. I have a glass of whiskey and my script in front of me. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and a distant hum 
of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. Two to three people die falling into the Grand Canyon every year. The canyon is about 1,800 meters at its deepest point. That's over a mile, but most people don't fall all the way down. The most common distance fallen seems to be around 500 feet, a trip which takes under six seconds to complete. Even if you were to find an outcropping from which you could drop all 6,000 feet, that's still only a 19-second journey. I thought you might find this relevant, since it just so happens that Alondra and Penelope have found just such an outcropping to leap from. For the first three seconds, Alondra panics. Falling is terrifying. The air seems to be ripped out of her lungs as she and Penelope plunge downward. It almost extracts a scream from her, a mindless expulsion of noise and horror before the end. Instead, Alondra reaches for the words she'd prepared. Comen sorsas, suprena for subteni, suprena for subteni. She begins to chant desperately, concentrating on the space around her arms. The initial force jerks her body out of the dive. She nearly loses her grip on Penelope's hand as Penelope falls past her, and Penelope lets out a sudden cry of pain when her arms jerk taut. Alondra chokes on her words. Her focus falters, and they hurtle down again, the dark rocks rushing towards them with inestimable speed. The thought appears unbidden in Alondra's head. We are about to die. She shakes it away. She forces her eyes to stay open even as they fill with water, and with all her will she marshals her trembling lips into the shapes of words. She extends her focus down her right arm and up Penelope's. She pictures a warm updraft carrying them aloft as one. She pictures a conjoined pair of angels, their two bodies suspended between a single set of feathery wings. And as she resumes chanting, she feels a gentle pressure against her chest and along the goose-bumped skin of her arms. Their fall begins to slow. Her lungs heave, and she continues to chant, her heart still screaming with exhilaration. Their bodies pass below their shoulders and they begin to float, right side up, Penelope gasping for breath beside her. They had already fallen so far. There was just another 600 feet or so below them. We can make it, she thinks. Above them, an array of Regency officers gather at the cliff's edge to look down at the falling figures. Two of them illuminate handheld spot torches. They emit an intense white light that jitters wildly around the canyon floor as the RO's hands shake. The rest glance at each other, unsure of what to do. One of the men draws his weapon, a light assault rifle holstered on his leg, places the stock against his shoulder, and narrows his eye through the lens, aiming downward. Stop. Word is almost lazily simple. With no expectation of being either misheard or ignored, it rings through the air with the simplicity that the word deserves. The officers turn, as Gabriel Burns strides out of the hedge maze and up to the cliff's edge, his midnight blue greatcoat billowing around him. His boots crunch in the small stones at the cliff's edge. The officer with the gun straightens up, holsters his weapon, and salutes. Lord Regent? Stand down. That's the first arcanist you're aiming at, and besides, you'd have better luck throwing rocks at this range. Gabriel Burns looms like a colossus at the cliff's edge. He stands at six foot four, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist. His well-groomed brown hair blows in the wind like stiff grass. Everything about him is taut and muscular, from the way he stands to the way he moves his jaws, he casts his eyes down into the abyss.
My lord, one of the ROs objects. She's interfering with the CDA, doesn't that mean- She shouldn't even know we invoked the CDA, Gabriel interrupts, furrowing his brow. How long since they jumped? Twenty seconds? The officers look at each other. Something like that. Gabriel extends his left hand. Spider nut. Now. A rail-thin RO with combed blonde hair and a hawkish look steps forward, retrieving a large metal cylinder from his belt. He places this in Gabriel's hand, then paces away along the cliff, staring after the falling women. Thank you, Eris. Gabriel takes the cylinder. It's a hefty metal thing about 18 inches in length. Gabriel twists the top and bottom in opposite directions in a single smooth motion, and the cylinder beeps in response, red LEDs lighting up in sequence around the top of the cylinder. Aubrey, how deep is this canyon? Gabriel asks. His armlet, just visible under his left coat sleeve, illuminates. 2,153 meters, it says in a cool feminine voice. Thank you, says Burns, giving the canister a final twist. That should do it, then. He drops the canister over the ledge. The fall, which at first felt incomprehensibly fast, now feels interminable. Sweat gathers on Alondra's brow, and as she struggles to maintain focus on the spell, the rushing river grows slowly louder, larger, and more menacing beneath them. Arcanist? Penelope's voice is still smooth and inquisitive, despite the terror moments before. Alondra ignores her. Arcanist Ramirez! Alondra chants harder. They're so close. Less than a hundred feet. Alondra! The faint beeping reaches Alondra's ears a second too late. She turns her head up just in time to see the falling cylinder burst open in a wave of concussive force. It sends Penelope and Alondra spinning, its contents exploding into a wide silver net that glints in the moonlight. Oh shit! Alondra yells. The tightly woven steel mesh is speeding towards them. At 30 feet in diameter, it already seems near to enveloping them. Penelope's hand slips from Alondra's as the force conjuration dies on Alondra's lips, and they tumble backward. In the moment the net threatens to close around them, Alondra emits a wordless yell and twists her body in a wild gesture, as if pulling something from the rock wall of the cliff itself. A sound like tectonic plates grinding in unison cracks the air. Stone heaves itself from the cliff in a jagged spike, nearly missing their falling bodies and just catching the spider net. It snaps around the new outcropping of rock with a metallic clang, wrapping it several times over. Tightly bound about the earth above them, the steel mesh takes on the eerie semblance of a cocoon. Before Alondra can take another breath, they hit the river. The force of the water on Alondra's back feels like hitting wet cement. It stuns her senseless for a moment, and the next thing she knows is the frigid cold of the water, the pressure, the realization that she is deep below the surface, out of control, tumbling downriver. Which way is up? She forces her arms into a cone above her head and kicks her legs, swimming with everything she has. How long has it been since she was last in the water? Riverside Park. Two years ago before her appointment as Arcanist, before the hospital, before Virginia. She can almost hear Lakiri's voice. Everyone needs to know how to swim. The world's more water than land, just the way people are more water than skin. Alondra kicks and kicks, 
arms sweeping as fast as they can, her chest tightening as she runs out of air. She wishes she had thought to take a breath before, but her hands touch air. Her face splashes out of the water and she gasps for breath. The river is starting to slow and widen here. She can see the faint outlines of boulders ahead. And Penelope. Penelope seems to have been swept up against the rocks. She's floating, face down, her already thin blouse rendered ghostly and transparent by the wet. Alondra floats towards her and grabs her arm, hefting her over her shoulder with one hand. She guides them towards the shore with the other. She casts a quick glance upward, but she can make out nothing in the darkness. Hopefully they lost track of them when they went underwater. She pulls Penelope out of the river onto a smooth bank of stone, dragging her backward towards a crevice in the canyon wall that the river had presumably carved out a thousand years earlier. Penelope is unresponsive, so Alondra, unsure of what to do, straddles her and presses hard on the solar plexus. She would have continued to try CPR, but on the first push, Penelope's eyes open wide. She rolls her head to one side and just about fountains water from her throat. For a second, it's like a hydrant's been opened up on the streets of Harlem. River water positively pours from Penelope's mouth in a steady stream as her chest collapses. When it's over, Penelope takes a few short, ragged breaths, then a single long inhale, and sits up, clutching at Alondra's arms. Are you okay? Alondra says. Penelope's grip tightens on Alondra's arms. I... yes. She's shaking visibly. What was that thing? Alondra clenches her jaw before answering. That was a spider net. A so-called non-lethal deterrent. They messed people up pretty bad during the Harlem housing riots. Penelope nods. The sound of the river just outside their hiding place fills any span of silence. Alondra shivers and stands up. What now? Tyr has significantly shorter days than Earth, making a complete rotation every 21 hours and change. A hundred years earlier, the days were even shorter, but Harper terraforming had put in place giant low-orbit satellites around Tyr called cycloinhibitors. These slowed the planet down by about three minutes a year since the original colony had been established. So, while it's near midnight in Harperstown, it's early morning and an extra day in Halsburg, when Sophia is woken up by a loud banging on her door. She's in a holding cell at the Republic Building. She adjusts her hijab hurriedly, and a man enters in a clean white shirt and an unbuttoned Regency jacket. He carries a cup of coffee and a folder under one arm. Safia wonders idly if the Regency springs for real coffee from Freya, then decides no. It's probably the powdered stuff, judging by the face the officer makes after taking a sip. The officer sighs heavily as he sits down opposite her. Underpaid and overworked, she thinks. Still better than starving. So, miss, tell me again how you were the only one left unaffected at the enchantment site? I told you, Sophia begins. I cast an interfe- No, the man cuts her off, dryly. What you told us is, what do you mean? I fell asleep like everyone else. You only changed your tune after Captain Carrick's examination. Sophia leans forward. Look, 
You've held me here for close to 30 hours. I know I don't have the same rights as a willing assimilate, but I still have rights. And furthermore, you know I had nothing to do with it. The man shakes his head. How'd you even learn to cast an interference? I didn't think they taught sorcery in the reclamation program. Safia feels a heat rise in her cheeks. No, they don't teach sorcery in the camps any more than they teach Arabic or Islam. The man looks critically at her. Safia feels the urge to glance away, but she forces herself to meet his gaze and just sits back in her chair. Look, you're clearly a competent magician, so I don't see the point in pretending otherwise. And look, you're right. Carrick confirmed that the center of the spell was somewhere on the south side of the square, opposite from you. We even have a good guess about who did it, but with no witnesses, or at least no one who isn't brain-fogged, we can't prove it. The officer retrieves a pair of reading glasses and dons them, opening the folder. So all I'm asking is that you confirm the description of the enchanter. A woman, about five foot six, black hair, Hispanic, often seen in a black leather jacket. He looks up over his glasses at Safia. Any of that sound familiar to you? Safia shakes her head. I already told you, I didn't see anything. The officer raises one eyebrow. Then he looks back down at the folder, rifling through papers. Memory is a funny thing. You never know what'll make you suddenly recall some detail or other. For instance, he extracts two printouts and slides them over to Safia. I just remembered that your brother and sister have missed their last three check-ins. Safia looks down at the reports, filed and updated after they each made their decision to refuse the oath of assimilation. Yusuf's is the most recent, maybe only a year old, but he's almost unrecognizable. Younger, clean-shaven, still defiant, but less sullen, almost hopeful. Kamar, on the other hand, looks exactly the same. Both reports are littered with flags of obstinance and poor behavior, rejection of pro-social conditioning, and a willfully persistent interest in Afghan culture. A flood of emotion fills Safia, and she looks up at the officer, struggling fiercely to keep water from gathering in her eyes. Yes, Safia says. I remember now. Gabriel narrows his eyes at the top of the cliff. The spot torch beams zag wildly across the canyon while the ROs search for the women. But even with their headsets down and full magnification up, finding two figures in a dark river at night from a mile away is not a promising venture. Torch is off, he commands suddenly, and the officers obey. There's no point in getting eyes on them from up here anyway. Better to let them think we've stopped looking. He gestures to Eris. Officer Dostoyev will take the Arcanist's autobike down to retrieve the spider net and examine the Arcanist's conjuration. I'm guessing she used a mimicry from the way she pulled it out of the cliff. The rest of you, start coordinating with local law enforcement. We'll need to set up a patrol along the cliffs. The good news is, we don't have to go down. The ROs move off, speaking to each other in low tones and issuing commands to their cohorts. Gabriel strides up to Eris. Did we get anything off the bike? Eris shakes his head. Rowling just checked. Someone wiped its navigation history. 
Gabriel looks out at the horizon, now littered with stars. That's unfortunate. Lord Regent, what if we don't catch them coming up from the ravine? Gabriel rubs his hands together. We may well not, he says. It's a big canyon, and we can't be sure how far the river carried them. Eris cocks his head. So, what then? Gabriel's eyes linger on the sky. Her ship's not registered at port, so she landed outside of the city, and she'll know the orbital fleet will lock her down if they get a chance. He points up at the stars. They have stations there in the west, south over Harperstown, and east over Devonshire. That means the Arcanist will have to fly low to the North Hills before attempting to break Atmo. Gabriel smiles, placing his tongue against the upper left canine as he thinks. Audrey, isn't there an old military base from the war between on the North Plateau? You are correct, my lord, his cohort responds. Fort Cameron was constructed in 2317 amidst fear that the Russian Interplanetary Federation would initiate an atmospheric strike on Harperstown. It was taken out of service in 2340. Get me all the documentation on their surface-to-air battery. He turns, still grinning, and pops his eyebrows once at Eris as he moves past him. I have some reading to do. In the relative safety of their stony hollow, Penelope sits while Alondra takes stock. Her headset is totally busted. It was a cheap off-brand device anyway, basically just a pair of goggles with a cohort-enabled wireless earpiece. Luckily, her armlet seems okay, and the soulmate receiver Jonathan gave her is still snugly attached. She shakes water from her hair. It feels heavy and rough against the back of her neck. Dandan, call my autobike. I'm sorry, Arcanist, but your autobike is unresponsive. Try again. While I can understand why you might question my judgment following a warranty-voiding submersion in an alien river, I assure you that I am pinging the autobike without success. I appear to have been locked out. Shit. Alondra looks over at Penelope, who is huddling in the corner of the crevice her knees pulled up tight against her chest, still shivering. Alondra takes off her jacket and walks over to Penelope, draping it around her. Seems kind of unfair that you're... You've probably got some kind of electric heater inside of you, and yet you're the one who's cold. She meant it as a joke, but Penelope looks miserable as ever. I wouldn't know. Alondra frowns. I know you've been studying the arcane. Have you read any Engelman? Penelope nods. Any education in magic would be incomplete without Engelman's lexicon, the most modern and syntactically consistent arcane language ever. Yeah, you don't have to recite the network page to me. Alondra smiles. You might have heard of this, then. She takes Penelope's right hand and positions it, holding her own hand up so that their palms are facing. Comensorsas Varmacre. She encants. Tension drops away from Penelope's face as a heat spreads from Alondra's hand to hers, as if Penelope were warming it at a fire. Thank you. Penelope almost gasps. Alondra smiles reassuringly and passes her hand slowly up and down Penelope's arms and above her chest. When Penelope's shivering begins to calm, Alondra stands. Why did you come for me? Penelope's voice echoes slightly off the rock wall. 
Alondra turns back to face her. Penelope looks searchingly at her. Alondra frowns. You didn't ask to be made the way you are. It just so happens you were made. Built, I mean. Not born, but... Alondra shakes her head. I don't know. You seem human enough to me. Penelope nods slowly. Where are we going to go? She asks. Alondra nods also, thinking hard. We have to get back to my ship as quickly as possible. She moves to the overhang of the crevice, looking northeast along the canyon. Phil expects us to move south, where the canyon shallows. They'll probably keep some officers directly above us, too. We need to climb fast, and ideally we don't want to be visible when we climb. Alondra turns back to Penelope. Come on. We have a long walk ahead and a long lesson in force conjuries to take up the time. Safia is nearly overwhelmed with exhaustion as she mounts the stairs to her apartment. She and her siblings lived in Radcliffe, a neighborhood predominated by cheap government housing, where she and most local non-assimilates live. She washes her face in the communal sink outside her quarters, takes off her shoes, and lets herself into the apartment interior. It's quiet. She checks her watch and decides now is as good a time as any to make up for her missed morning prayer. She rolls out a small rug and touches her forehead to the ground, praying, as she always does, for Yusef and Kamar, for her homeland, and for humanity at large. As always, she wishes she remembered the words to pray in Arabic. As always, she prays in English, but in her head, so no one will hear. When she's finished, she pulls up a loose floorboard and extracts a plastic bag with part of a loaf of bread inside. She peels a slice out of the bag, replaces the remainder of the loaf, then exits the shared kitchen. She toasts the slice and returns to her bedchamber, where she sits in the corner of ragged blue and white bedding and munches slowly at the warm bread, savoring every brittle bite. She makes a gesture, and the interference lights up around her head, pale blue lines of whirring energy. She's shocked by how threadbare it looks. The light is pale and insubstantial, almost transparent. She'll have to spend hours repairing it. She's about to begin when the door bursts open and Kamar and Yusuf enter. Safia hurriedly dismisses the illumination. Safia, where have you been? Yusuf's voice is hoarse with tiredness, but it nonetheless shows concern. He's been working night shifts at the corner store. Safia knows he hates it. His face is bearded, his eyes dark and hollow. It was nothing, Sonu. There was an incident at the East Square, she says. I was held for questioning as a witness. Kamar removes a heavy wrap and hangs it by the door. In contrast to Yusef, she is statuesque and beautiful, always wearing pristine makeup, her sharply bridged nose somehow just the perfect shape to complement her pointed chin and high cheekbones. People at the camps always used to say that if she chose to assimilate, she could be a model no problem. But that wasn't exactly Kamar's style. She would use her beauty to make money, knowingly and with indifference, but she would never consent to its public consumption. What happened at the square? Kamar asks. Her voice always carried the quality of equivocation, but Safia knew this was just an affect. At least, she was pretty sure. Yusuf makes a beeline for the hidden bread, and Safia watches him. There was a riot, 
she says. People angry about the service bots, same old story, but then she hesitates. There was a witch, and she made everyone stop rioting. Kamar is impassive, Yusef immediately incensed. Magic! It's just another tool of oppression. They will not silence us. He stomps out towards the kitchen. How did you escape? Kamar asks. You don't seem fogged. Safia casts her eyes down. She can never match Kamar's stare. I... I, I got lucky. A smile twitches at the corner of Kamar's lips. A psychologist at the camps once told Safia privately that something had broken in Kamar a long time ago. The psychologist was one of the nice ones, and she had taken Safia's hand in hers and pressed it tightly. She said it had happened before reclamation, maybe even before their great tragedy. And she said that Kamar would never quite be like other people. Safia hadn't really known what to make of that. But in the years since she'd been released and joined her sister in Radcliffe, she had begun to understand. Kamar turns her head to Yusuf, who just re-entered, shoving a piece of bread in his face. Yusuf Ali! He stops dead in his tracks. Slow down! You'll choke to death! Yusuf retreats back towards the kitchen to finish his bread in peace. Kamar looks back at Safia. Well, a big ensorcelment. That must have the regency in a fit. Safia nods. Has there been much news about it? Kamar sits down on her bedding in the corner opposite Safia. I don't know. I just got home. Kamar nods. Get some sleep, she says finally. You look like you need it. It takes Alondra and Penelope an hour or so to finish their preparations, and another hour to pick their way up the canyon towards the falls. A few times, they have to duck behind boulders until the hum of the hover jets goes by, searchlights occasionally passing within inches of their cover. But there's no shortage of hiding places in the rocky floor of the ravine, and each time, once their breathing has slowed, they continue on. Perhaps it's the tension of the journey, perhaps the exhaustion coming off doing such a great deal of magic, but the time passes mostly in silence, except for the occasional call and response of any arduous endeavor, a grunt of pain, are you all right? A fine, thanks. And silence again. Alondra has turned off her armlet just to be safe. People sometimes said that all these devices had trackers in them that you couldn't turn off. Alondra is not sure she believes that, but she certainly is not going to take the chance of a rogue GPS signal giving them away. There are more searchers in the air than Alondra might have hoped, but she tells herself that just reinforces the necessity of the plan. Not much to be done if they get caught out on the rock face of the cliff mid-climb. Nonetheless, as the crashing sound of the falls gets ever louder and closer, so does the breath tighten in her lungs again. Her heart is beating very fast indeed when they make their way around the last jagged rock fall, and the mile-high monolith of falling water comes into view. The raging white foam of mist reflects the moonlight perfectly, so that the entire column of the waterfall appears haloed in silver light. Alondra turns her face up to the sky. Only one of Freya's moons is even partially visible. It peeks past the edge of the rock wall before them, bright and breathtaking. Alondra wonders which it is, Hugin or Munin, and for a moment she considers turning on her armlet to ask Dandan. 
A bad idea for a number of reasons, she knows. And besides, they lost too much time already. And they haven't even gotten to the hard part. When they reach the basin of the falls, Alondra places her hand on the wet rock face and looks up at the dizzying journey ahead of them. The static noise of the water echoes around them, and Alondra turns to Penelope and murmurs an illumination, a simple spell to make visible other magics. Pick up a rock, any rock, she says. Penelope obliges. Alondra nods. This is called Loman's Pulley, she says, and a golden emanation surrounds the stone. Philip Lohman figured out that, just like a system of pulleys, you could harness the power of gravity, especially a constant nearby momentum, around a system of conjured fulcrums or axles. Penelope nods, slowly. Alundra smiles. So, I've tied one end around the stone in your hand, for example, and I'll place my first axle there. She points above them drawing a ray of light from the stone to a shimmering point in the darkness a few feet above their heads. And finally, Alondra continues, we add water. Alondra has only to point at the waterfall. The stone flies from Penelope's hand and goes soaring into the sky. Penelope laughs. Alondra catches herself smiling too. So, she grins, we'll do that, but slower. The spell takes some time to prepare in earnest. There were ways of giving non-practitioners the ability to control certain magics, through enchanted stones or rings or the like, but that would be much too time-consuming. Instead, the easiest thing to do was to mirror-bind the spells so that Alondra could modulate them as one. Alondra makes a point of breaking up the casting into pieces, just like in the demonstration. First the tethers, then the fulcrums, then the transference of the fall's momentum, throttled so that Alondra could ease it on and off. Halfway through the mirroring, a drone buzzes the basin. They hide behind a boulder till it moves on, and Alondra has to start the last spell over again. Finally, though, they wade into the water. They skirt the edge of the basin, and when they reach the point where the roiling froth of mist becomes almost opaque, Alondra pauses and looks back at Penelope. You ready? Penelope nods. Okay, here we go. They place their hands on the rock wall. Already drenched again, Penelope grabs onto Alondra for support as Alondra murmurs the activation word. The stone is slick and sharp in places, and Alondra grimaces as Penelope makes some misjudgment and knocks them both against the cliffside. Soon, though, Penelope's weight lessens in Alondra's hand and then they are both maneuvering themselves upward, climbing almost effortlessly up and up. They move fast, a passive concentration on the spell serving to hoist up the majority of their body weight. Though it's too loud to speak to each other, and too loud to hear the whir of a hover jet, Alondra is the first to notice the beam of light crossing the falls above them. She exhales sharply, her heart pounds, and as the beam moves towards them, Alondra slaps Penelope's ankle hard and jerks her head toward the fall. Penelope looks at her, sees the beam of light, and nearly loses her grip in shock. Still pressing themselves against the wet stone, they both inch toward the cascade on their left. Penelope spots an opening and clambers up to it. Alondra finally has to drop down several feet before practically rolling into a small fissure. They wait there for several minutes, protected by the pure tonnage of frothing river falling around them. 
before inching out to resume their climb. They take many breaks, nesting themselves wordlessly on ledges and natural-forming balconies, rubbing their arms and catching their breath. Time passes all too quickly this way. So it's something of a surprise when the flood of water changes directionality, suddenly, and the two of them come abruptly to a sloping ledge. Eager to be in the clear, Alondra pulls herself up and over. Smaller stones press painfully on her bruised hands, but she turns quickly to help Penelope up, dispels Loman's pulley, and attempts to wring water out of her shirt. Arcanist, Penelope says. Call me Alondra. I feel like after climbing up a mile-high waterfall together, we're on first-name terms for sure. Alondra, then. Penelope starts again. Look up. Alondra looks up. The sun is breaking out of its nighttime prison in the sky, glowing steadily brighter and casting the gently waving grass around them in molten gold. Penelope laughs, a pure light sound that infects Alondra with relief. We made it! Alondra can't help smiling herself, but she shakes her head. Not yet, she says. She stretches once, with a deep inhale, and adds, Not yet but almost. She nods to Penelope, turns, and sets off for the Hyperion. Evander has already done his hair and makeup when his cohort bloops to life with a raindrop noise. Regency officer at the front door. Go ahead and let him in. Evander throws on a dressing gown over his undershirt and sweats and slips his feet into brown suede slippers. He descends the stairs to the main room to see Gabriel rubbing his hands and looking out the glass window at the early morning sun. Lord Burns, when my cohort said regency, I did not expect the regent himself. Gabriel turns, a wan, close-lipped smile of appreciation on his face. The dark circles beneath his eyes are the only thing out of sync with the image Evander had come to know from the televised speeches and rallies. Late night? Evander asks. Gabriel nods. A magician's propensity for study is never satisfied and easily piqued. Evander smiles uncomfortably. Can I offer you some coffee? Gabriel raises his eyebrows. Please. The coffee is real and excellent. Gabriel sighs exultantly after his first sip. Remind me how you met Arcanist Ramirez. Evander watches Gabriel carefully. I flew to Earth to interview her, five years ago, back when she was called the Harlem Witch, not the first Arcanist. Gabriel sniffs. Hmm. Evander purses his lips. My lord, I did try to keep her occupied yesterday. Gabriel sets his mug of coffee on the bar. I have no doubt you did, but your diversion was only meant to be a precaution. He leans in. How did she learn I was here? I do not think it was you that told her. Evander busies his hands, opening the dishwasher and returning cutlery to a drawer. Obviously not, he says. How then? Evander looks up. Despite the bags beneath his eyes, Gabriel's stare is laser-focused, burning into Evander with an intensity that almost physically drives him back a step. Jonathan Harper, Evander says shortly. The planetary rep? Evander shakes his head. 
his son, a very talented mechanical engineer by all accounts. He and Alandra, the arcanist, became friends shortly after well, shortly after the Virginia Mason. Gabriel holds Evander's gaze for a long moment. Evander is shocked at how his eyes seem to hold him. One of his mother's odd sayings springs to mind. As a mouse to a cobra, so the cobra to a snake charmer. And Evander suddenly feels all too aware that he is the cobra, and Gabriel is the man playing pipes. Finally, Gabriel casts his eyes to one side, stands, and places his hands on the bar top. Evander has to stop himself from audibly sighing in relief. One other thing, Gabriel drawls, sounding almost bored. You wouldn't happen to know where the Arcanist left her ship, would you? Evander freezes again, and without thinking, his eyes slide down to the ornate grip of the revolver at Gabriel's hip. He forces his eyes away quickly, looking off toward the espresso maker as if thinking hard. No, he says. No, she never told me. Gabriel fixes his eyes on Evander one moment longer, brow furrowed, then sniffs and rubs his face. Oh well. His eyes catch on something resting to his right on the countertop. What's this? Evander looks at it. A small, perfectly black sphere. Somehow he hadn't even noticed it before now. I... I don't know. It must be Alondra's. Gabriel extends a hand, and with a grunt of effort, he hefts it into the air. Hmm. He looks at Evander, still holding the black stone aloft. Well, <clears throat> well, I'll make sure she gets it back. I'll be seeing her later today. He moves to leave, but turns on his heel. Oh, Evander. Evander inhales sharply. Yes? About that sketch you ran before the appointment. Evander grimaces, wondering vaguely if he should be worried about being turned into a toad or something. Wasn't that what it always was in the stories? A toad? He clears his throat. <clears throat> yes? Gabriel nods his head to one side, as if mostly talking to himself. I liked it, but tell that actor who plays me not to blink so much. It's out of character. He smiles at Evander again. Good day. The door clicks shut behind him. Norell shakes Bridget awake. Hey, we're here. Bridget sits up, eyes adjusting to the harsh sun lamps in her bunk room, and nose adjusting to the smell of vodka on Norell's breath. What time is it? Norell hands her a glass of water. Drink this. There's good news. Our names aren't attached to any of the stories cropping up on the incident. In fact, there isn't much coverage at all. You remember our story? Bridget nods, sipping slowly. We didn't go to Odard's because of the rioting. We were on our way around the planet to Galen's Lock when a reactor gauge started complaining. We stopped for a day in Sharp's Bay for repairs, then continued here. Good, Norell nods. Only flat lie is the never making it to Odard's bit. And knowing your cause, eh, he'll be too fogged to know a customer from a book. Norell slaps Bridget on the cheek a little too hard to be purely affectionate. That's for fucking up my interference. Took me four hours to recast it last night. Norell turns and leaves the bunk room. 
You're a terrifying little brain bender, she calls over her shoulder. That's for damn sure. Meet me outside in ten minutes. Norell is rearranging things in their packs when Bridget slips out of the hatch and descends the ladder to the ground. It's a lot warmer in Galen's Lock, which is located just below the equator on the opposite side of the planet from Halsper. A light summer wind is blowing over the plateau, and there isn't a cloud in the sky. Well, no clouds, but one of the cyclo inhibitors is currently passing in front of the sun, casting an enormous and correspondingly ominous shadow over the marbled gray stone they stand on. How far is it? Bridget asks. Thirteen miles? Adios mia. Norel whips around sharply, and Bridget takes a step back instinctively. Do you want to take the chance of parking the Phantom in the center of Galen's Lock? For all we know, our faces are on display on every help screen from here back to Chiron. I thought you said, fuck what I said. They could still be waiting for us. I'll lose my license as a trusted practitioner, and they'll cast an injunction on you or worse. Shit. If I had any sense, I would have done it myself the minute I took you on. She pushes one of the packs into Bridget's arms, hard. Come on. I refuse to let this trip be an utter waste. Nerell shoulders her pack and starts off across the plateau. Bridget inhales slowly. Well, maybe I needed a warden who wasn't a clinically depressed alcoholic. Nerell stops. She turns around, just loud enough to be audible. She says, No one else volunteered, Brigetta. No one else. So I'm afraid I'm all you've got. The six-mile trek to Galen's Lock is completed in silence. The shadow of the cyclo inhibitor passes slowly over them, or perhaps they pass into it, and then out again. Slowly, they begin to make out the shiny metal shapes of buildings in the afternoon sun and the shiny surface of the lake around which the city was built. When they get to a road, Nurel pulls a surgical mask on and passes one to Bridget, wordlessly, who dons hers as well. They must have looked an odd pair, entering the city on foot. Bridget suddenly questions whether it wouldn't be less conspicuous to just call a car. She illuminates her armlet, but she can't seem to connect to any of the local transport apps. They walk around the perimeter of the road, past a large bank of abandoned shops, past a number of help screens, none of which are displaying wanted pictures, Bridget notes, past a grassy park, past a group of protesters and counter-protesters who seem close to blows. Norell turns and gives Bridget a hard look as they pass them. They finally come to a tall tower, which is much more tower-like than the usual bot-driven construction project that built up the early colonies. An iron-wrought gate swings in the wind, and an overgrown path leads to the lower entrance, a heavy steel door. It's basically just what you might picture a wizard's tower looking like. Bridget thinks it's rather pretentious and ugly. Narelle pulls off her mask and knocks, with a hollow, clonging sound, followed by an unexpected rusty creak as the door swings open. That's not good. Narelle frowns. No. It isn't. The door swings open to reveal a wide antechamber with several doors and a circular stair leading off it, a room that might once have been functional and perhaps even welcoming. But it is difficult to reconstruct a complete image from the skeleton of a scorched couch and the blackened tiles on the floor, the rest of the furnishings reduced to ash and kindling. Norell and Bridget both pull off their surgical masks, mouths gaping.
A crash from above them causes them to start. Norel looks back at Bridget, then both of them whisper spells under their breath. Norel bounds silently up the circular stairs, her feet slamming into the stone without making a sound, as if they'd been placed on mute. Bridget, meanwhile, begins to shimmer, as if in an intense summer heat, the effect intensifying until her shape can barely be discerned. She follows Norel up the stairs, making decidedly more noise, but it doesn't matter. At the top of the steps, she careens right into Norel's shoulder, which catches her in the chest. She coughs and falls into a splintered piece of cabinetry with a loud bang, the shimmer effect dissipating as she does. Norel barely notices. She's staring up at the tall ceiling, where a man has been lashed to the chandelier. His mouth gapes open and a rope of blood and saliva splashes onto the ground as he jerks his body and emits a horrible, wordless sound. Bridget pulls herself to her feet, watching the man flail and kick his legs into a tall bookshelf which thuds dully against the wall. What the fuck? Norell's eyes are narrowed. The room smells like a torture chamber. Piss and shit, fear and blood. Bridget, she says, endeavoring to keep her voice even. Would you please climb up and cut the archmage down? Alondra feels like she could hug the Hyperion when she sees it, even though it's been less than 13 hours since she left Evander here. How much time has passed? Alondra realizes she doesn't even know. This is yours? Penelope is looking starry-eyed at the hulking metal ship. The yellow paint job seems even brighter and cheerier in the light of dawn, its top fins sparkling like a beacon. That, Alondra points at Penelope, that is exactly how I looked when I first saw her. The ship is defiantly boxy, but in an aesthetically pleasing way. It had been designed with a sort of retro, aerodynamics-be-damned panache, all flat planes and acute angles, with rounded-off corners, instead of the gentle curves, characteristic of most interstellar atmospheric class vessels. Alondra scans her face and punches her door code into the exterior console. The rubberized entry hatch depresses inward, and slides up with a satisfying foosh of air. Penelope's eyes catch on the way the long grass bends sharply to and fro around the door. It looks so strange, as if something were moving through it as the ship depressurizes. Alondra fires up her armlet again. Dan Dan, what's our best shot of getting off the planet without orbital knowing? There are three nearby space stations, forming a triangulated defense system over Harperstown, I would recommend the best way to remain unseen would be to fly north two to three thousand miles before attempting our escape path. Good enough for me. Alondra steps into the dim entryway of the side entrance, turns, and looks back. Welcome aboard the Hyperion One, Alondra smiles at Penelope. Anywhere in the galaxy you've always wanted to go? Many miles north, Regency officers mill about, inspecting the old equipment. Fort Cameron had never seen action. The feared attack on Freya by the Russian Federation never came. As such, the facility has the strange quality of a thing abandoned before ever being used, like a Lego set left shrink-wrapped on a shelf for decades. It had been used, of course. Men and women undoubtedly more or less lived here for months at a time, for many years. But there are no scorch marks, no crumbling walls. It is a pristine ghost town. Gabriel steps down of the helidrone and onto the main deck of the base. It's cold up at this elevation. He pulls on leather gloves and checks his armlet. Eris, 
Any trouble? Eris steps down from a platform, around which a mixed group of Regency officers, military, law enforcement, and worried-looking engineers are gathered. Eris and the ROs bow as Gabriel approaches. Eris straightens up and casts a sidelong look at the military men. Questions were asked, Eris says. Why you needed a counter-evasive intelligence missile, for one. Gabriel slows his pace as he nears the group. Eris closes the distance, and Gabriel quiets his voice. Hence the escort, I take it. Eris casts his eyes critically at one of the military officials. Townies, that one didn't even know who you were. Gabriel nods and strides past Eris to shake the hand of the man in question. Gabriel Burns, Lord Regent of Magical Affairs. The man takes Gabriel's hand and attempts to squeeze the life out of it. Gabriel smirks in lieu of a grimace as the officer speaks in a reprimanding tone, never quite looking at him. General Matthew Torrance, I report directly to Commander Harper. Now look, I've been given to understand that this confiscation of dangerous artifacts business demands our compliance to the best of our ability, but it would be deeply irresponsible to hand over a supersonic guided missile to a civilian who knows nothing of the technology or firepower in question. The general releases Gabriel's hand and reaches up to clap him on the back. It has the effect of slapping a tree. This weapon is a Silverhawk three. It accelerates continuously toward the target at the rate of a bullet fired from that pea shooter of yours, reaching terminal velocity at six times the speed of sound and uses advanced onboard intelligence to repilot its course continuously to the target. At which point... It delivers enough explosive power to knock a cruiser on its ass. So, that's what you... The general trails off as he turns around to land his point, and finds he's missing Gabriel, who's walked behind and past him, mounting the platform and picking a power drill up off the plate floor before the general places him. You're quite right, Gabriel says carelessly as he ascends the rungs of the battery ladder towards the silver hook. It would be irresponsible to hand this over to a civilian who knows nothing of the technology in question. Gabriel snaps a metal band off of the weapon, whirs the power drill to life, and in a series of quick motions, unbolts a ring of fasteners beneath it. Fortunately, I spent five years running a company that recycled weapons like these into energy resources, for colonists and exo-miners. There was a lot of money in that, in the years after the war between. Mr. Burns! The general begins. What do you... Eris cuts him off sharply. General Torrance, you will address the Lord Regent by his title, or else as my lord. He is not a banker or a lawyer. He is charged with keeping the rule of magical law across the four stars of our republic. And while the Regency is not a military outfit, the Regent most certainly outranks you. Torrance opens and closes his mouth several times. Up till now... The Regency was just a wing of the Republic building that he had never entered. His field magicians mentioned the word often enough, but hearing people say the Regency was very different from watching the Regency dismantle a rocket in front of you. Do you know why I carry a six-shooter? Gabriel grunts as he pulls off the nose of the missile with a hollow metallic pop. It's because if you need more than six shots, you're either a lousy marksman or you're using the wrong weapon. He slides the warhead out of the missile, almost lazily, passing it down to one of the attendants. Every tool has a purpose, and a revolver's purpose originated in the Wild West, 
when individuals who fancy themselves above the law came head-to-head with those who defined it. He snaps the nose of the missile back on, extends his hand for the power drill, and bolts it back into place. He then begins whispering to the missile. This goes on for quite some time, as Eris and the other officers watch. The general appears undecided on whether or not to speak again. Gabriel is muttering in a constant stream, with a quiet but firm voice, as if coaching a loved one through performing an open-heart surgery. Finally, he stops, smiles vaguely at Eris, and descends the ladder onto the platform. What now? Torrens asks, baffled. Gabriel shrugs, adjusting his gloves idly. Now we wait. Alondra leans over the main console, watching the readouts and radar screens in the dash carefully as the Hyperion flies over a sea of rolling green hills. Stay low. We want to get as far away from the command stations as possible before hitting our escape path. Penelope is holding onto the bars in the cockpit doorway as if her life depended on them. Does it always feel like this? She says. Alondra turns her head to her. Have you never flown before? Penelope shakes her head fervently. Christ, Alondra gestures to one of the guest chairs. You might feel better sitting down. There's a safety belt. Penelope gingerly steps forward, waiting to the last possible second to let go of the bar and dart into the guest chair, where she immediately buckles herself in. Dandan's voice pings to life. Arcanist, we are about to pass on the west side of Fort Cameron. What's that? A decommissioned high-elevation military base from the War Between Worlds. Great. Do you have a visual? Throwing it up on display three. Alondra peers at the screen. Fort Cameron appears to have been constructed at the top of the largest hill in the neighborhood, even after the generous application of dynamite that was undoubtedly used to flatten it into a plateau. It's still a good sight taller than anything else around. The base itself is just flat gray cement and gray outbuildings. A few hulking batteries, and... and... No. Alondra slams her fist on the four-thruster override. The jets roar, and the nose of the ship lifts sharply upward, throwing Alondra bodily into the captain's chair. Retract the wings, Dandan! Prepare for escape velocity! On the base deck of the fort, the targeting computer emits a shrill beeping. Gabriel leans over it eagerly, straightens up, and looks through a pair of binoculars. She can fall, but she can't fly, he calls cheerily. That's our yellow Springsteen. He returns to the computer, quickly confirming the target and preparing the missile for launch. General, Gabriel demurs, you ever fired one of these things before? Um, no, Torrance admits, stiffly. Would you care to do the honors? The general mounts the platform and, after looking searchingly at Gabriel for a moment, he flips the launch switch. Gabriel covers his ears. The computer beeps through a short countdown, and the enormous battery recoils with an explosive boom. On board the Hyperion, the defense system goes online with a low siren. Alondra searches the dash for something useful. Dandan, what's going on? They appear to have shot a missile at us. What? They appear to have shot a missile at us. Alondra slams the side of her chair with her hand. I know what you said. Penelope's breath catches in her throat as she tries to speak. The force of the ship's acceleration flattens her body out against the back of her co-pilot's chair. Can we outrun it? She stammers. 
I'm sorry, Dan Dan is uncharacteristically halting. I am not sure. Alondra's mind is racing. She curses, unbelts herself, and pushes herself up to the chair to lean over and look down at Penelope. Pen, we have to... The defanged missile hits the Hyperion just below the main rocket engine. The missile still explodes. Its remaining propellant momentarily supercondenses and then combusts on impact. But this does little more than throw Alondra forward and onto the ground, as the Hyperion's stabilizing jets hiss. But then, something very different begins at the point of impact. The rocket engine flickers, then goes out. The engine itself cracks as water droplets condense around the white-hot metal and then freeze, the engine turning black beneath the ice. Ice creeps over the Hyperion from the point of impact forward until the ship looks as if it had just freed itself from a glacier, a cloudy veneer of frozen water, coating it from the back to midriff. And as the engine goes out, Alondra finds herself floating off of the ground in zero gravity. Alondra pushes herself gently off the floor with her feet and reaches for the switch that turns on the gravity pad. Dan Dan, why are we still alive? It appears that our main engine has been disabled. Can you get it up and running again? Alondra falls heavily against the control panel as she flips the artificial gravity on. I am diverting power from the reactor to thaw the combustion system, but if the temperature readings I'm seeing are correct, it would seem that the engine has been frozen. Burns. Alondra turns to Penelope. You okay? Penelope looks even paler than usual, but she nods. I'm okay. Okay, and we haven't suffered a hull breach. Dandan's voice is genuinely reassuring. Not as far as I can tell. Alondra rubs her face with both hands. Her brain is on fire, buzzing with the unpleasant frenzy of moving directly from crisis to crisis for a long period of time. Her elbows slam into the dash as she hunches over the controls. Dandan, how long till we start losing altitude? About 17 seconds, Arcanist. Start a countdown. We have to be as far up as possible. Why? What are we doing? We're going to enter slip. But, Arcanist, entering slip in a non-vacuum is next to impossible. The energy required... I... I know the science, Alondra says. Just start the countdown. Dandan starts counting down. Penelope grabs onto the edge of her seat as the engine coughs and the ship shudders. What are you trying to do? Alondra wipes sweat from her forehead and places her hand on the lever. The slipstream reduces space between particles to close to nothing. The energy expenditure is proportional to the concentration of particles. So we just need a lot of power to get started, Penelope asks. Well, Alondra looks at her. That's what the reactor is for. Three, two, one, Alondra concentrates. Here we go. She presses the lever forward. Now. There's a humming sound as the power surges to the slip bow, the long straight rod that points directly from the nose of the Hyperion. It begins to shudder visibly. Come on. Come on. The humming intensifies as the light coming through the window seems to dim. Then all the lights in the cockpit go off suddenly. The humming dies, and the lever kicks back in Alondra's hand. Darkness. Fuck. The lights flicker on as the system comes back online. Arcanist, we seem to have experienced a brief loss of power and are now losing altitude, Dandan Dan says. 
Should I extend the wings and attempt to glide safely to the surface? Fuck, 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 fuck. Arcanist? Penelope removes her seatbelt. Alondra whips around. What are you doing? We're in free fall. Penelope pushes herself towards the dash. Where's the power line? What? Can we access the slip drive's power supply? Alondra points. It's behind the panel. Before she can finish the sentence, Penelope has jammed her fingers underneath the plate and pried it off, using her foot as a lever. It clangs off the ground and floats toward the ceiling. Penelope grabs onto the aperture and places her hands over the massive cable. Alondra stares at her. What are you doing? Engage the slip drive again. What? Engage the slip drive now! Alondra throws all of her weight behind the lever. The hum of the charge buzzes through the cockpit, and Penelope places her hands above the exposed cable and yells, Common sources! Electrocrave fulminar! With a thunderclap, the cockpit is filled with a blinding white flash, and the starlight of Wolf is snuffed out like a candle as the Hyperion vanishes from the sky. This was episode two of The Elendred. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, produced by Janelle Yee and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Camille Sohit, Chris Garber, Toro Adeyemi, Kyle Wilson, and Olivia Vadme. Thank you for listening. The story will continue next week. Hey there, me again. Thank you again so much for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. One thing I missed in the outro for the first few episodes is a very important thank you to Joe Mendick, who did our theme music. The man is a diamond in the rough. This show is called Thomas Tells a Story. You can follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. If you love the show and want to keep it going, there are a few things you can do to help. Most importantly, engage with us. If you have questions or comments, reach out directly on Twitter or ask a question on the subreddit and we'll try to address those questions on the air in a future episode. You can also leave us a review or a rating. And lastly, if you have a means, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week.